Bishop Tutu in our, in our recent primary battles with the, certainly the Democratic side, we've had a lot of discussion about the race card. I'm putting the race card out there with that question. What do you yes, think? Yes. Um, I, I would expect, I mean, that uh, we would be naive to pretend that that was uh, not uh, an issue. And uh, when, when you're on the underside, uh, it does look like, yeah, uh, there, are, there are lives that are slightly more equal than others. Um, but you know what? I would, I would say out of that awful, awful situation, and I, I, I mean, we, we went there with President Carter and Grasa uh, Marcel and uh, Lagda Brahimi. Um, it's an awful, awful, awful situation. But I came away struck by two incredible facts that I, I had not been aware of. One was we, we invited the, the uh, internally displaced persons to a meeting and, and they came. And, and the people living in those abominable conditions, they could laugh. They could laugh. And you looked around and you, you saw, you saw where they lived. I mean, these shacks made of sand, no privacy. How families were able to survive there, only they knew. I mean, didn't protect you from anything. And the men, being mostly Muslim, were wearing white costumes, spotless. I mean, you say, hey, man, how come? Except as, a, as evidence of the incredible resilience of the human spirit, that those people actually refuse to see themselves and be seen as victims. They, they, they know what they want. That was the one. The second is something that we, I, 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 I think we ought to be kicked where it hurts. Yeah, I mean, do you know, how many times have people ever referred to the humanitarian workers? Those people who go in there mostly people from very comfortable circumstances in their, in their home country, choosing voluntarily to go into some of the most fraught situations, especially women. You, you wondered, I mean, how they, I mean, knowing that they would be abducted, they would be raped, many of them, returning time and time and after. And I think, I mean, that we ought to, to have a way you media people sometimes can say, 
we want just to hold up and honor humanitarian workers. All right, it's, a, it's a good point. Time for questions, Kate. Hi, my name is Molly Kinder, and I'm a recent right. graduate of the Kennedy School at Harvard. Uh, my question is on the food crisis, and it's directed in particular at President Sirleaf. Um, in light of the, the fiscal constraint on the government of Liberia, how is your government managing the short-term trade-offs between the need to keep prices of rice down and also send a price signal to producers? And over the medium term, do you see the food crisis and the rising cost of rice um, as a potential opportunity for Liberia for rural development? Thank you. Food crisis, a real problem. Uh, a country with scarce resources just trying to get in the process of rebuilding. As you well know, Molly, you looked at some of the statistics there. Uh, all petroleum price increase, double whammy. Uh, big problem for us. What we've tried to do is to mitigate the, the short-term impact by removing taxes, takes away from our revenue, makes revenue even scarcer. Uh, we've been a bit lucky too that we've, we've been able to get some assistance from the short-term allocations from the World Bank, from the World Food Program, uh, uh, from the US also, um, through the special initiatives. So, but we wanna see this as an opportunity also, in the medium and long term, because We've neglected agriculture. We've depended upon food aid for too long. And now the message to everybody is nobody's gonna feed you anymore. You know, you gotta get out there and grow it yourself. So not only are we getting into large-scale mechanized farming, just because it's more efficient in the shortest period of time, but also encouraging our small farmers to go back to the soil, whereas most of the population have migrated to the city for the comfort during the war years. Uh, now there's not gonna be free food in the cities for them anymore, so we'll hope that we can turn the crisis into an opportunity and get them back in the medium and long term to, to grow our own food and to shift people's, um, people's eating habits uh, so that we don't be overly dependent on rice as we are now, but can learn to eat you know, plantains and cassava and, and all the other kinds of, uh, kinds of food. But in the meanwhile, it's a big risk, huh? because the risk is, you know, a hungry person is an angry person. And, and if the price keep going up and we can't adjust salary levels to enable them to, uh, to buy more food while we wait for the opportunity of growing it ourselves, and in an environment like Liberia where our peace is so fragile, uh, you run a serious risk of uh, rebellion, uh, young people taking to the streets and that has all kinds of implications, but uh, we just have to do the best we can. All right, next question, please. I'm Chelsea Purvis from Oxford and Yale. Um, and Madam President, what is the role of women in particular in uh, the economic and political um, rebuilding of your country uh, since its crisis? Big role. <laughs> they, they led the peace effort I think a film been produced recently by um, Abby um, Disley. Uh, it's got an interesting title, Pray the Devil Back to Hell. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> it was the women, you know, leading a prayer group that, that actually forced uh, Taylor uh, into exile, put a lot of pressure on him. Um, women are very strong in Liberia. The women, the women organization are strong still vulnerable, 
uh, in terms of, uh, you know, violence against women and all of that, but uh, we're very strong. And hey, hey, a woman's president, what, you know? <laughs> you see the proof. <laughs> Go ahead. Can I, can I you may. humbly uh, interject? On behalf of men I, or what? Yeah. <laughs> yes, to say that um, women have been incredibly generous, but there may be that the time has come for women to say, you know, I mean, women nurture life. Women are affirming people. And, and women know how to share when they are truly feminine, not when, when, not when they try to ape men, when they, are, when they allow their femininity. And, and I want to suggest, I want to suggest, ma'am, that you might consider a, a revolution led by women which says to, to men, look here, we've, we've allowed you. I mean, look at the mess you have made, man, guys. Let's admit <laughs> you have. Get out of the way. Let, let women, seriously. That was my campaign talk. <laughs> Bishop, Bishop Tutu. Bishop Tutu, it looks like we men have escaped here in the United States this year, but once a woman becomes president in this country, they're never gonna give it back. Never give it back. You had something to say. On this question of, of the role of women, I think it's an issue that in the world of development, there hasn't been enough discussion of because um, it goes to the, the dirty little secret of development, which is that a lot of poverty is caused not just by low incomes, but by bad spending decisions. And I know so many times I've gone out and been in families where they've just lost a child to malaria and there's no bed net and the mother is grieving there and you ask where the dad is, well, he's off at the bar drinking up the family savings that could have been used to the bed net. And there's been some research of the families, uh, families globally earning less than a dollar uh, per day per capita, uh, the bottom tier. And of that group, it looks as if approximately 20% of family income, disposable income, goes to a combination of alcohol, tobacco, sugary drinks, uh, extravagant festivals, and prostitution. And the reason, and 2%, that's 20%, 2% goes to invest in education, which actually has a positive economic return. Now, the way that connects to women is that uh, the reason the money is allocated that way is that overwhelmingly the uh, purse strings are controlled by men, cash crops are grown by men, subsistence crops by women. And there are studies both in Africa and in Asia that show that when you give women more control over the purse strings, then immediately you begin to see more investment in children and in small businesses. And so it's not just an issue of equity or justice or morality. It's also very much central to the issue of fighting poverty itself. All right, question. Hi, my name is Shireen Santosham, and I Could you speak up just a little oh, bit, thank you. I'm Shireen Santosham, and I'm a student at the Harvard Business School and the Kennedy School of Government. And I have the privilege this summer of working for the government of Liberia in the Ministry of Internal Affairs, which has been an amazing experience. And one of the things that's most interesting about it is watching the interaction between the international community, donor community, and the national government. And 
at different points you can see what an advantage it is to have international players to help accelerate development initiatives. And then in other times it seems as though the international community focus on short-term results doesn't always recognize the immense challenges that a country can face. And so I was wondering how the international community can help strike the right balance between those two. How the international community? The last didn't part. Hear the part to the, oh, sorry. Maybe the sound system, but we didn't get it. Oh, how they the can balance strike. between the two uh, The short-term results and sort of allowing the pace of change to seep in over time. Right, you have short-term results and you have a pace of change that you want to accelerate, is that it? Well, the, the pace of change in it, for a country like Liberia is gonna be, can be slow because of human, cap, human capacity constraints. And so I'm wondering how do you strike the right balance between short-term results and then allowing change to take a slower Talk pace. Talk about the pace of change as um, you see it. Obviously when you're dealing with, with an environment in which people have been subjected to the effects of war for over two decades, um, the value system, the mindset, are all different. And so um, you've got to be able to, to start the process of change in, in certain things that you have to show right away that, that the old ways and doing business the old ways are not gonna be tolerated, like, like stealing and corruption. I mean, you've gotta take people to court right away. So you send a clear message you're not going to do that. Uh, on the other hand, the pace of change to remedy, reform the value system, to give people a sense of why education is more important you know, than extortion, to get what you want. Uh, it's a process of education, it's a process of sensitization, and that one takes a much longer period of time. Uh, I'm no expert at that, but, but I, I can tell you that uh, there are lots of tensions in a society because there's a resistance to change. It's, it's a human nature, natural human nature, not, not to want things to change because, because you're satisfied with the status quo. So what we've been trying to do is to take the, the macro things that can be changed right away and change them right away. But the, the human factor things uh, is to, to go a little bit uh, slower as, as you try to reform the mind. So. It's, it's a tough one. I don't tell you I have any formula because we're going through the trial and error process as, as we try to, you know, to start the process of renewal and reconstruction. Question over here. Hi, uh, my name is Sanjak Kanjala. I'm a student at Harvard Medical School. And I was wondering, I know the situation in Kenya hasn't completely settled down, but both Kenya and Zimbabwe have gone through recent electoral strife. Whereas, and the results have been very different in the two countries. In Kenya, they reached a compromise internally, whereas Zimbabwe, we have the situation as it is. Can you compare and contrast maybe what factors are involved in Kenya that are different in Zimbabwe? Nicholas, you want to start off this? Um, well, in, in Kenya, the, um, I mean, one of the differences was that the, that the president, that the, that the government was not willing to completely crush the Luo population, the, the population of, of Odinga, of the, the contender. And so, and the Luo population has traditionally been business people, and they were able to largely stop the economy. Plus, you had a tremendous amount of international pressure. Uh, plus, you had the former UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, do a superb job of mediation there. And so, you had a bunch of forces coming together that um, led the 
president to see it is in his own best interest to go ahead and, and make concessions. Um, I think in the case of Zimbabwe, um, Mugabe looks at his options. He doesn't feel that outside pressure, he's sufficiently, he's able to completely ruthlessly crush the opposition and to get away with it. And I don't think that the costs and benefits of, uh, of working out an agreement with MDC have been aligned such that, that he's going to make those concessions, short of a lot more pressure coming from other leaders in Southern Africa. With your permission, let me take one more question. Our time is short, and let's see uh, what, what it is. Right over here. My name is Maya Roberts. I'm at the Harvard School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. And my question is, how do you support local NGOs um, in their own development while maintaining the benefits they provide from grassroots connections without losing that um, to their inability to necessarily scale up? How do, you, how do you benefit from their closeness to the people while also encouraging them to grow? Madam President? We've brought them into the tent. Uh, instead of them going out and each doing his own thing, responding to their own sense of priorities, uh, we've, set, uh, we've set the agenda and say, let's all come under this agenda and let's, let's all work together. You, you stick with, with our priorities. But the NGOs do, do a great job out there. Um, they save a lot of lives and they take the kind of risks that, that others won't take. So uh, the thing is to, to give them the support they need uh, but have them also work you know, with us in, in some kind of holistic way so that uh, the, the development objectives are common. Well, I've learned something from this panel, and I uh, trust that you have also. Uh, Nicholas Christoph, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Bishop Tutu, always a pleasure to see you. And uh, Madam President Johnson Sirleaf, the Iron Lady of Africa, thank you for being with us today. <laughs>